Father God, we thank you, uh, Lord, just to remind ourselves once again, Father, Lord, that our hope, our security, our everything is ground in the word this morning, Father, Lord, that we are not left to our own devices. We are uh, not just simply out here making stuff up, Father, Lord, but you have given us a word. And so we pray, God, that, that we would have eyes to see, we would have ears to hear. We would have hearts to understand, Father, and that that you would give us grace upon grace, Lord, so that we may understand your word. Father, so many of the disciples missed it. So many of the crowds missed it, Father, Lord. And and your response to them was, do you still not understand? Have you not yet seen? Do you not yet understand what you've heard? So, Father, Lord, let us not be numbered among those people. But, Father, Lord, may we be numbered among the saints, Father, those who heard your word, who understood your word and stood the test of time, Father, and remained faithful to you. Well, we realize that apart from your moving spirit, Lord, apart from your intervening grace, apart from your love for us, we are simply left by ourselves, utterly hopeless, utterly lost. And so, Father, we ask that you would break in this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen got to be honest with you, as I always am, uh, is I struggled on what to preach this week, right? So we've been working our way through the book of Mark, uh, trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? But just, uh, just a little bit of history about me. You might not know this, but I don't, I don't, I'm not prone to watching the news, right? How many of you, like, that's your ritual? You five o'clock, six o'clock at night, you get home, you flip on the TV, and there's your news. Like, growing up, that's how my parents were. That's how I imagine some of you are. I just... It's not been a theme, it's not been a, a regular rhythm of my life to actually come home from work and flip on the news and see what's going on in the world. Now, if you do that, props to you. Uh, it's just not been my story. And so, at any time I tune into the news on, on sort of like a daily basis, you can pretty much understand there's probably something going on in the world that will make it into the history books. Not that I know everything, right? Just that... When I'm driven to find out what's going on in the world at large. So let me give you an example. Since I've been pastor here, I've watched the news probably about four times. <laughs> it's been about two years almost. Uh, first time was worldwide pandemic. COVID. Breaking in on the scene. Everyone's talking about it. And so we, we, we made it. God uh, bless us. We made it through COVID. And eventually I start, started turning off the news. I turned it off uh, way before we have officially made it out of COVID, just in case you were wondering. <clears throat> or else I would have never got out of that hole. Uh, so I've watched, I watched the, the news around COVID. Then, uh, then I watched the news around the presidential election. Trump versus Biden, who's going to win it? And then lately, I've been watching the news around the situation on the ground in Ukraine. And here's the thing. If me as pastor... The guy who knows the scriptures, right? That's theoretical. Uh, The guy who knows the scriptures, understand what God is doing throughout the course of history, is given into despair, hopelessness, wondering what happens next. And I can only imagine that some of you are as well. Perhaps you're holier than me, and this isn't on your heart. But this week, just tuning in... Every, every morning when I wake up, what's, what's happened on the ground? What's, what's going on? Is this madness come to an end? And I open the scriptures and try to reground myself in God's providence and God's timing. And so this, this morning, I 
you know, throughout this week, I was leading, what am I going to preach on? Right? Because I don't want to be one of these preachers who just simply ignore the larger world, right? Like, you've seen guys like that. Perhaps you've come out of church like that where, like, yeah, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Here's what the Word says. No, 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 no. The Word should always impact and frame and, and move us into understanding what's going on in the world at large. And so... I, I was torn. Do I preach on, on regrounding us in, in what it means to be made in the image of God, right? So that we, all people everywhere made in the image of God have dignity, have worth, have value. I thought, no, like, so what did I, I just, I just marked chapter 8. And as I began to meditate on these scriptures this past week, you know, it reminded me again how good God is to us. That we would be in this text today, Mark chapter 8. We would be here answering the question, answering three questions that, that, uh, that this section of Scripture an- answers. Which is, number one, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does he expect of you? Those are the three questions that the Scriptures ask and that we're going to answer from the Scriptures this morning. And here's the reason I, I, I'm so thankful that we're here this morning is because it, it really puts us into perspective, Right? Because here's the thing, you and I can go through the motions of, of church and, and yeah, we love Jesus, uh, but it's when these larger issues of life kind of have bear on us that, that we begin to find, well, what does it mean to love Jesus in a world where, where, where civilians are being massacred? What does it mean to say that, well, the, the, the greatest need of people in all time, in all situations, in all of history is to know who Christ is. Well, well, Pastor, how does that bear out in Ukraine right now? My answer is it's massively important. Massively important. More than the people of Ukraine need humanitarian efforts. More than the people of Ukraine need a no-fly zone. More than all of that. My argument is they need to answer the question, who is Jesus? You see, there's a a faulty perspective of Christ that is extremely dangerous and seductive. There's times like these where history would bear on us that we have to answer it. David Platt exposed this understanding of Jesus in his little book called Radical. Here's what he wrote. He said, we American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, and who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes. And who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Listen, any honest and fair reading of Scripture will reveal that this is not who Jesus is and is not what Jesus demands for us. You see, it's only this type of Jesus that we struggle with the world issues playing out on the world stage right now. Like, well, how important is a Jesus who only cares about our comfort and lack of danger. It doesn't make sense. And thankfully, that's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. You see, Jesus says, die, and then follow me. And so here we are in Mark chapter 8. 
This is the beginning of the great discipleship discourse where, where Jesus is going to predict his coming crucifixion, his death and resurrection three different times, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Immediately following each time, he instructs them concerning this is how you ought to then live and what it means to truly follow him because they just don't get it. We'll see today that Peter tries to correct Christ on what kind of Messiah he will be. In, in, in chapter 9, verse 34, they're debating the greatness of the kingdom. Again, right after Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. And then in chapter 10, verse 37, James and John preempted the others in asking to sit on his right and left hand in the kingdom. Right, The disciples just didn't get it. And so our Lord explains what, what to the disciples and to also us what it looks like to follow the king who came to die and serve, who calls his followers to die and serve as well. So look at me at Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went, went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. So stop right there. Jesus takes the 12 north for a time of private instruction. Caesarea Philippi is an unlikely location where, where we'll see the first human proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. It's unlikely because it's the outer regions of paganism, idolatry, hostility to this Hebrew faith. And it's at this point in Mark's gospel that we have a crucial turning point. You see, as Jesus brought the gradual physician's sight, uh, gradual physical sight to the blind man of Bethsaida, he will now bring gradual spiritual sight to the disciples concerning who he is and what kind of Messiah he will be. Look at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, hey, what's the, what's the scuttlebutt? I don't, I don't know where that term comes from, but what's the, what's the, what's the word on the street? Who, who do people say that I am? I want you to see Mark is building a narrative here. He's been doing it since the first time we launched off in our gospel of the gospel of Mark, right? He's trying to answer something. He's trying to answer this question, this question, who is Jesus? Right, so Mark is telling us a story, right? The Gospels are narrative literature. What I mean by that is, like, you read the Gospels different than you read, say, the Psalms. Right, so the Psalms are poetry, right? So the Psalms say things like, uh, and the, cles, the trees clap their hands. Now, stop right there. Do trees have hands? No. Simple question. No, they don't. Right? It's poetry, Right? But the Gospels are also not like Paul's letter. Right? So when Paul writes the, 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 the letter to the Romans, right, to the church in Rome, right, like he's very much like giving us a systematic theology of way of thinking. Right? He's, he's saying a question and then answering it. Right? That's completely different than what the Gospel's doing. You see, the Gospel's telling us a story in narrative form. Most of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, are this type of literature, this narrative form. Let me show you what I mean. Flip back to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, I want you to see this. See that I'm not, not, I'm not just up here making stuff up. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Jesus saying to his disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were there with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, 
asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Listen, look right at it. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Disciples have this question. So Mark is telling us this story that Jesus in his home, he's gotten a boat and, and, and Jesus takes a nap and his disciples freak out. They wake Jesus up and Jesus says, hey, calm down. They say to themselves, like, who is this man? Now watch this. What does Mark do immediately next? Does Mark say, and here who Jesus was? I don't know. What's he do? He doesn't answer the question. He immediately goes on to the next story. So in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, Jesus heals a man with a demon. What kind of man is this? This is the man who can control not only the winds and the seas, but demonic spirits. In chapter 5, verse 25 to 34, Jesus heals a woman with an issue of blood. What kind of man is this? This is a man who has power over all human sicknesses. In Mark 5, verse 21 through 43, Jesus raises the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. What kind of man is this? This is a man who has power over life and death. Look at at chapter 6. Zoom in here with me in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus is back in his hometown teaching in the synagogue. Verse 2. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Listen, disciples, the, the, the rulers of the synagogue try to answer this question, who is Jesus? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You see, you have some people giving the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Look at verse 12. They went out and proclaimed... That people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed their, with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But Herod said, no, 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 this is John whom I beheaded has been raised. In chapter 6, verse 30 through 44, you have Jesus feeding the 5,000. What kind of man is this? Who is this? The man who controls the material world. In chapter 6, verse 53 to 56, Jesus heals many sick people. What kind of man is this? This is a man who I've already said has power over all human sicknesses. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, Jesus reorients his hearers' hearts around the world. What kind of man is this? Who is this? This is a man who can have the proper interpretation of God's word. Chapter 7, verse 24 through 30, Jesus heals a Gentile woman's daughter because of her faith. And 31 through 37, Jesus heals a deaf man. In chapter chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Jesus heals a blind man and this same chapter, verse 22 through 26. What's Mark doing here? He's answering the question without answering the question. You see, our Western mind said, no, no. He asked the question, we need to get a direct answer. 
But his disciples ask a question, and then Mark tells us who Jesus is through these stories. He's showing that Jesus has all power and authority over demons, all power and authority over our health and vitality, all power over death itself, all power and authority over all material objects, all power and authority over all sicknesses, all power and authority over the interpretation of the scriptures, all power and authority over incurable afflictions, all power and authority over spiritual science. You see, Jesus asks a question here in chapter 8. A question these 12 disciples have pondered since he calmed the storm in chapter 4. Who then is this? And so the disciples give the answer they've heard going around, the the popular answers. Some agreed with Herod that that he's some kind of reincarnation of John the Baptist. Others judged he was Elijah, the prophetic forerunner before the end of days. Still, others made a simpler claim. He is just simply one of the prophets. Perhaps the one promised by Moses in Deuteronomy. Now, these were favorable assessments. All would have been good things. Each is positive and affirming, much like how people today applaud Christ as a great moral teacher or applaud Christ as an example of of one we should follow. They honor him, but they misrepresent him. They applaud him while denying who he really is. The inescapable question demands an accurate and acceptable answer. Who do people say that I am? Look at verse 29. He turns the question. He asks them, but who do you say that I am? He shifts the question to his disciples. And before we see the answer, I want you to turn back to Mark chapter 1. Because Mark, as the writer of this gospel narrative, has already answered this for us. Only not from the perspective of his disciples. Look at verse 1 of this whole account. Mark 1.1. Mark, the narrator, gives us the answer. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. The Son of God. Look at verse 11 in the same chapter. It says, And a voice came from heaven. We hear that God here answers, Who is this man? Who is Jesus? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Look at verse 24 of the same chapter. The demons answer rightly. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Flip over to Mark chapter 3, verse 11. The demons again get it right. Whenever, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 7, again, the demons are on it. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you done? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Flip all the way to the end of the story, Mark chapter 15. Mark wraps up his gospel here at the death of Christ, the crucifixion on the cross. Verse 39, chapter 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. 
So the whole story, the whole arc of Mark's gospel is getting at this one question, who is Jesus? Flip back to Mark chapter 8, because it's here in the center of Mark's gospel. The voice of Peter is added. Verse 29. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. The Messiah. The coming one. The one who is going to make all things new. You are the Christ. You see, popular and trendy views of Jesus must always surrender to the clear and consistent witness of Scripture. The idea that Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets is not closer to the truth than the way that we often try to figure out, well, who's the historical Jesus? Right? You've seen seen CNN's miniseries on this, right? The Discovery Channel's, right? What are they doing? They're trying to say, you know, we can't trust the Scriptures. We can't trust the church's interpretation. We're trying to find who is the real Jesus. That's what they say. We only know Jesus from the scriptures, fam. Anyone who tries to come at you with a source that, well, you know, Jesus probably married, probably had kids. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. Only the scriptures tell us who Christ is. Listen, this is why the scriptures are so important. Without the scriptures, where would we be? We'd be lost. We'd have no hope. So praise be to God that he inspired men to write down the things that they saw so that we would know who Jesus is. Listen, don't buy into the trendy views that Jesus just wants you to be happy. It's not true. We're going to see that in just a minute. Stand on the word against these faulty assaults of who Christ is. Personally, publicly, and proudly declare your allegiance to Christ. Proclaiming he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one and only Savior of the world. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. Next question. What did he come to do? You see, Mark chapter 1 through 1 through 8.30 has led to the confession, you are the Christ. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 through the end of the book, 16 verse 8, will lead to the confession, you are God's Son. And reveal the kind of Messiah He will be. That's a suffering Messiah. Something hinted at in the first chapter and the second chapter, but now main plane. The first half of Mark focuses on who He is. The gospel tells us the king has come. Our response is to repent and believe it. The first confession comes from an insider when Peter says, you are the Messiah. The second half focuses on what he came to do. The gospel tells us the king must die. Our response is to take up our cross and follow him. You see, the climactic confession comes from this outsider, this Gentile A Roman centurion, this man who says this man really was God's son. You see, a king who dies is not what the the disciples were expecting. It's not a king who died was not what the disciples wanted. It is, however, what they desperately needed. Look at verse 31. It says, don't tell anyone, verse 31, he says... 
He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Notice. He said this plainly. This is a shift in the way Jesus would often talk to folks. Often talks, he would use parables. Ways of telling a greater truth through imagery that people could understand. And oftentimes what happened, the disciples were like, man, we don't understand this. And so they get Jesus alone afterwards like, hey, what did that mean? Like, what? Talking about planting seeds on the road, right? I don't, we don't understand any of that foolishness, Christ. And he's like, ah, you guys don't, you guys don't get it? You guys don't understand? But, but notice here, he speaks plainly. You see, Jesus begins a new chapter in the disciples' education. It's time for them to graduate, even if they're not ready. You see, Jesus is the Christ. They got that right. The Davidic son of Psalm 2, the apocalyptic son of man of Daniel chapter 7. He will usher in an eternal kingdom over which he will rule as king and lord. However, God's way will be different from what a world that exalts power would expect. He will suffer be rejected, especially by the religious establishment. Be killed and rise three days later. Notice all of this must happen. It's necessary. It's what the scriptures promised. This is why he came. This is what sin's payment demands and we cannot provide. So what did Christ come to do? He came to die. The Son of God, God incarnate in the flesh, came to suffer in your place and in my place. You see, this is where the law of God and the love of God will meet on the cross. This is where the judgment of God and the grace of God will meet on the cross. Listen, it must happen. This is the way Jesus designed the world to work from before eternity began. God's ways are often hard. They're always clear. Always clear. Look what he says in verse 32. He said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Peter was on board. This is it. We've made it. The Christ has come. Finally. All things will be made right. He was on board with Jesus being the Messiah, but he wasn't on board with Jesus going to the cross. And so Jesus rebuked the demons in chapter 3. Peter now rebukes Jesus. Listen, this is a, this is a powerful moment here. Don't miss it. There's a lot here. It's one thing for a teacher to rebuke a student. It's an entirely different thing for the student to rebuke the teacher. Now, I know... In our culture, we, we're like, yeah, give it to him. Show the man. This is Christ. He just said he's the Messiah, God in the flesh. And he begins to say, nah. Jesus like, I'm going to die. He says, nah, I don't think so. Peter quickly gets in return what he has just given and more. Jesus treats Peter as if he were Satan. Or a demon-possessed man, right? This is harsh. 
says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you're out of your mind. Like Satan at the temptation of the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, Peter offers Jesus the crown without the cross. He thinks he has a better plan than God does. Peter wants a Jesus to fit his agenda. He thinks he knows the kind of Messiah Jesus needs to be and attempts to reshape and redefine him to fit his conception. Listen, before we're too harsh on Peter, we must ask the question, are we not often guilty of doing the same thing? Give me a Jesus I can control, one I can conjure up in my image and likeness. Give me a Jesus who only demands of me what I want to give. Now, you and I must learn and affirm the ways of God, not man. You and I may not fully understand it. It may not be easy or safe, however, it will be best. Romans 12, 2 bears this out. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Jesus came to die, and Peter says, no, nah, I don't think so. Jesus says, get behind me, brother. I'm going to take you out next. He corrects him lovingly, kindly, but he corrects him nonetheless. So finally, the question of us is, what does Jesus want us to do now? What must we do? What is our response? You see, God's ways are often hard, but usually clear. They're a challenge, but always perfect. And the passion of the Christ, this suffering of the Christ, reinforces these biblical truths. Confident that God's will is perfect, even if it might not be safe, we therefore embrace the call of Jesus to follow Him and to die with Him in order that we and others might truly live. Look at verse 34. Calling the crowd to Him. So now, finally, it's no longer just Jesus and the homies. He invites the crowd in. And He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus lays out the essence of the normal Christian life. The basics of true discipleship. But sadly in our day, this normal Christian life is also like, man, that guy's radical. Radical Christians. No, no, no. This is normal Christianity. We've bought into the lie that Jesus simply just wants us to come to church and give our money and live our life any way we please. No, no, no. The normal Christian life, he gives it here to us in three essential things. First, we deny ourselves. We give up the right to self-determination. We live as he directs us. We treasure and value Jesus more than ourselves, our comforts, our aspirations. We put to death our own desires. See, denying ourselves means saying no to ourselves and saying yes to Jesus. Second, he says, take up your cross. This is interesting. You see, every one that heard this would have understood what he just said. Take up your cross. John Piper says it like this. He kind of puts it, he's like, that would be the same as us saying, pick up your electric chair and carry it with you. Pick up the firing squad and carry it with you. 
pick up the lethal drug injection and carry it with you. This is mind-blowing. Everyone knew that the Romans used the cross to die. Everyone knew that when, when a prisoner was being uh, crucified, they would have to carry their own horizontal beam to the spot of the cross. And Jesus knows that they know this, and so he says, pick up your cross and follow me. This is not normal or natural to, the, to uh, life without Christ. Like, we say this to people who don't understand, like, that's insanity. Like, have you ever thought about the fact that most, some of us wear, I don't, uh, but, but some of you guys wear, like, uh, crosses on your necklace? It's insanity. Carrying around a torture device on your neck. This is what Jesus calls us to. It's a slow, painful death, but it's necessary to be Christ's disciple. Finally, he says, follow me. Follow me. He says, it's coming. I just told you all I'm going to die. Resurrect in three days. Follow me in that. Follow me to Golgotha. Follow me to death. I thought we were following you to life, Jesus. Are we willing to believe and obey Jesus? It will be radical when considered with the way the world tells us to live. It will not be comfortable because it involves a death to the self-centered life. Look at verse 35. Whoever would save his life will lose it, right? Jesus is continuing here. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Right, so verses 35 to 38 all have this word for. Jesus is providing the basis for the challenge of verse 34. Right, so in verse 34 he says, this is how you live. Follow me. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Deny yourself. And then he says, four. Here's why. I'm going to give you the reason why you should do this. If you save or treasure your life above all else, you will lose it. That's what he says. You want to hold on to that? You're going to lose it. The only one who plays it safe and considers his existence more important than Jesus will lose both Jesus and eternal life. So like, I started this message out saying, like, this is the most important question for Ukrainians. It's not humanitarian aid. It's not a no-fly zone. It's answering the question, who is Jesus? Because if you want to save your life, if you want to hold on to life, you're going to lose it. It's only in the laying down of our lives that we actually save it. In contrast, the one who gives his life for Christ and the Gospels will actually save it. Following Jesus involves risk. Risking everything, safety, security, satisfaction in this world. But he promises, like this is a promise from Jesus himself to you, church fam. He promises that this leads to a reward that the world can never, ever offer. It's a life worth giving for the glory of God and the gospel. It's a dying to self that others might live. It's not safe, but it is the normal Christian life. J.I. Packer says it like this, there are in fact two motives that spur us constantly to evangelize. The first is love to God and concern with His glory. The second is love to man and concern for His welfare. C.T. Studd, missionary to China, India, and Sudan said it like this, we will dare to trust our God 
and we will do it with His joy unspeakable singing aloud in our hearts. We will a thousand times sooner die trusting only in our God than trusting in man. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Your life is set free to live this normal Christian life, this radical Christian life, when you see death as reward. When you can say with Paul, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. You see, Jesus asked this question in verse 37. I don't know if you caught it. He didn't answer it. Because the answer is understood. What can a man give in return for his soul? Answer, nothing. Nothing. What can you give in return for your soul? Nothing. You can give nothing. What does it benefit for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Answer, nothing. In April 1798, Linda McCartney, wife of Paul McCartney of the Beatles, died. Newsweek concluded its article on her death by saying the McCartneys had all the money in the world. Enough to afford their privacy. Enough to give them a beautiful view. But all the money in the world was enough to keep her alive. John Piper puts it this way. He says, what's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? Being proud of them. Admiring them. Not being embarrassed to be seen with them. Loving to be identified with them. You see, Jesus is saying, you can give nothing in exchange for your life. But he does say that to uh, lay down your life for his sake and the sake of the gospels, to not be ashamed of him. Here's what he's saying. He says, if you are embarrassed by me and the price I paid for you, right? he's not referring to just lapses of courage when you don't share your faith but a settled state deep in your heart toward Christ that if you're not proud of me and you don't cherish me and what I did for you, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you and you will perish with the people who consider me an embarrassment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 1906-1945, understood what the normal Christian life should look like. The way may be hard, but the path and the end are glorious. This is what he says in the Call of the Disciples. I don't know how much you know about Dietrich, my boy Dietrich. Dietrich was a man who lived in the time of World War II. Dietrich was a man who not only loved Christ, but, but he... he was angry with the church for its stance toward the war, towards Hitler. He said, we've, 
we've traded the glory of God. We've traded, uh, we've, we've, we've become embarrassed of Christ. And so, so much so that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was assassinated by the Third Reich because of his uh, attempt to murder Hitler. So he was on a panel of, of other men, tried to assassinate Hitler. Third Reich found out, pulled them all in and shot him. Here's what he wrote in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins... The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die. Because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact... Every command of Jesus is a call to die with our afflictions and lust, but we do not want to die. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, means both death and life. May all of us learn how to die for Christ in the gospel that we and others may truly Live. May all of us learn what is and how to live this normal Christian life. This is what it looks like to follow the King. The way that I divide these scriptures, I've been, so last week I had Brother Philip preach. And the last section in Philip's text was uh, the blind man who just spit on his eyes and touched him, and then he says, Can you see anything? It's the only time that we see Jesus interacting doing a miracle where he has to do it twice. Now, Philip said, I can give you an answer. He says, the answer is I don't know. It was awesome. But the more that I thought about that this week, I was reflecting on Philip's sermon, I, I wondered, what's Mark doing there? It's the only time. Mark's the only one who actually includes that uh, gospel narrative in his gospel. You see, Jesus had to touch the man twice for him to see. He touched him the first time, and Philip accurately said the man must have not been blind from birth because he knew the distinction between what a man was and what a tree was. And he says, I see men walking, but they look like trees walking around. So Jesus touches them again, and he sees clearly. And I thought about how that story, right, told at that particular time, right before the confession of Peter, like what's the relation between those two? Don't you see? Peter accurately said, you are the Christ. But I think he only saw him as a man walking around like a tree. Because he immediately then gets it wrong. So he needed a second touch. You see, our life in Christ, our spiritual maturation in Christ does not happen overnight. Eugene Peterson said it something like... uh, Sanctification is a long time in the same direction. Something like that. A long time in the same direction. Listen, church fam, that's true for us. 
We follow Christ and we stumble, we fail, we get back up. He's told us how to live. He's told us how to die. And we need to do it every single day. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now. Father, Lord, just the, the brink of World War III on our minds, Father. And we remind ourselves, we reground ourselves in the scriptures, Father. No matter how expensive gasoline gets, Father, you are still in control. Father, no matter how the nations rage, Father, you are still in control. And Lord, as you ask the disciples, who am I? You ask each of us who you are. Father, I pray that we would answer it rightly. Maybe not perfectly over at the beginning, but over time, Lord, we understand you more and more, day by day, grace upon grace, precept upon precept. Father, I pray you would open our eyes to this kind of living, this kind of dying, Father. It's only the man and it's only the woman who is unashamed of you that you will be unashamed of. It's only the man, only the woman who is willing to lay down their life for the sake of the gospel, Father, that nothing in life scares them. So I pray you would give us a peace that passes normal understanding, a peace that passes what the world defines as peace, Father, but you would give us that peace is able to sustain us as we follow hard after you, after our King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.